0: Hi, you're listening to Hello Audio, a podcast by The Venue Berlin. Every episode, we bring you the latest topics and the best entrepreneurs of music, audio and tech. Hello, audio. By The Venue Berlin. Hello everyone, I'm Helen from the venue Berlin and today I have Lee Smith here who is coming all the way from New York. Um, maybe you give us some more background about yourself.
1: Yeah, hi, uh, thanks uh, Helen. Yeah, so uh, my name's Lee Smith as uh, as she said and um, I'm uh, a senior research engineer at, at Landa. I've been working at Landa now for four years. I'm involved in developing the Artificial intelligence and the signal processing behind uh, products, and uh, perhaps the first product that we started, which was automated mastering, and so and and the company's then grown from that. So we're doing a lot more now in terms of more. Most recently, in August, we released a sample recommendation system, and so I was quite deeply involved in that. Basically, where AI and music intersect in terms of actually developing algorithms and ultimately doing some of the coding of that is sort of where I fit in as part of a very smart team that I'm a member of.
0: Great. The reason why I wanted to have an interview with you, Lee, is because you've been working in the place of music and AI for about 20 years now. So I think it would be really nice to do a little wrap up with you about the evolution of AI and music how like how has it changed over the years um, that you've been working in it I mean a few years back artificial intelligence very often sounded like something very futuristic but then you've been working in this field for such a long time maybe you can give us some background of what is what it was like when you started where do you come from why did you decide to work in this field
1: Mm. Yeah, where I started from. So um, as my accent betrays, I'm not originally from New York. I'm originally from uh, Perth, Western Australia. And um, I'd started doing computer science there at the one of the universities. And um, I had... Become interested in AI quite early in my undergraduate computer science degree, and there was work going on. And so, this we're talking betraying my age here. We're talking in the mid '80s, um, which was also a great time for music. And I happened to also be a. I had begun learning guitar when I was about seven, and I'm Still playing, so when I got to college, of course, there was these two passions of music and computing, and you know, there they, it seemed obviously at the time fairly separated. There was the uh, a particular product, uh, the Fairlight, which was a uh, um, a digital a commercial digital music uh, system or audio workstation system, extremely expensive, but it it sort of at least made it feasible that there was this possible meeting place of technology and, and music so so that was my initial inspiration to sort of start to look at that and whilst I was um, you know doing my undergrad I was playing in a rock band and uh, ultimately became a synth player you know bought myself a synth and this was sort of on the order of about 1986 so MIDI had just actually begun and so I'd already been doing work in communications I originally got into in uh, my first job out of college was in communications and cryptography and so you know for me it was always saying how do I possibly drive these two passions together and obviously AI was also a passion that I had although in crypto and comms there wasn't really that application there so so to get a little closer to the question you're asking about was at that time in the mid 80s there was literally what was known as the AI winter um, and that is that there was this period where the US government had put a lot of, the military in particular, put a lot of money into AI with things like Star Wars and all of this somewhat scary ideas of using AI for defence. But it had actually really <laughs> revealed the limitations to what's known as symbolic AI. In other words, we were really modelling the way in which humans interacted, communicated and, and processed ideas in very, in basically in these symbol forms, in these structured forms. So basically closer to the way in which we think of um, text and sort of parsing text. So it was very much in this sort of model. And so the, the type of AI systems which were around at that time were literally music parsers, the idea of being able to break up a stream of symbols, which would typically be musical notes or perhaps audio events or something like that, into something that we could at least we could represent computationally as these sort of networks of interactions but there were some fundamental limitations to the approach and a lot of that had to do with the size of memory we had available and that sort of thing. Um, So so that was sort of the the mid-80s era when I first got involved and interested in in AI and uh, you know this was uh, an era where actually implementing something was fairly, was quite a task, you know. And so I'd, I'd sort of done some early systems, uh, some interactive performance systems with some artists um, uh, in Australia. Um, and uh, what would I say? They were, they were sort of like less than ideal, you know. The results weren't that great. And a lot of it had to do with just the very shallow representations of the way the machine thought about music, the way it it captured what music was. So, so that really sort of, I guess, to me, exposed some of the problems in being you know in playing in a band I understood the type of complexity that that people interacted with you know and the degree of exchange and communication that was going on at the same time sort of really running up against the problems of trying to do this and admittedly I was trying to do this in C++ back in its day and with MIDI systems and oh my gosh so so all of that really you know ultimately I, it drove me towards wanting to actually focus on that and and that's what led to what was eventually a PhD in computer music, computer science, with a focus for my research in, in music.
0: What did you know about music and AI before you actually started? I did some research and I found out, I'm not sure, I guess it's true, that the first work totally written by AI was already in 1957, which seems to be super early. I guess the work, like what you can do today, will completely differentiate and be way more complex. But it's, it's crazy that it's been there for so long and only recently we actually started talking about this. And also, there the first conference about music and computers was in 1974. So, what did you know about it before you actually started? And did you know that? Did you expect it to become something big, or did you feel like this is maybe just a cool gadget?
1: Yeah, no, no, great question. I mean. As I say, with the exception of just understanding that there was at least some commercial examples of this, and in the mid-'80s, you started to see the beginning of these digital synthesizers. Historically, they were all analogue. So there was this sort of, what would I say, it was starting to become apparent for somebody in their early 20s um, without, you know, obviously well before this idea became clear. So what I did, I started to really dig into, you know, plough through the library and sure enough, discover this. And as you say, 1974 was the first International Computer Music Conference and the university I was at, they they only had a couple of these proceedings. So I took it upon myself to spend some money and buy quite a few of the proceedings sort of dating back to, I think the earliest one was 1980, I realised it wasn't much point going back earlier than that. Um, but my first uh, work was actually doing a literature review of what had actually gone on. And exactly as you say, it completely blew my mind to find how much had actually already been undertaken in the field. As you mentioned, 1957, Jana Sinakis and his work. It's interesting because... What he was doing, he wasn't thinking of it in terms of artificial intelligence. He was a composer and he was thinking about this in terms of constellations of sounds, constellations of events... And so he was thinking very schematically. I mean, he trained with Le Cabusier, so he he sort of had this very spatialized, geographic model of of how you interact and and relate sounds. So he was thinking very very spatially, been very much in multiple dimensions. And so it was a natural process for him to try and search for those outcomes. And of course, computers in those days. He, you know, he managed to get hold of an IBM 709.
0: Yeah, it's crazy. It, uh, it really feels like very often this innovation actually, in especially in the field of music, it comes from musicians. It doesn't come from just software developers. Like when I did my research, I saw that even David Bowie's Um it, it was mentioned quite a few times, although I don't think it, it, it's just a randomizer for, for lyrics. But It comes from a musician who just wants to take advantage of softwares that exist and just use them to be a bit more creative.
1: Mm. Yeah, I, I think it's actually essential. I think it's really essential that you have creative people driving you know sort of using that imagine their imagination i mean that's basically what they're great for and with all due respect to all these imaginative software engineers i count myself one of those people um it it, you, you need someone who's sort of driving it from an aesthetic direction first because otherwise and and this actually goes beyond simply creating music software i think it goes for all software you need to drive it from a design point of view what are we actually trying what sort of human problem are we trying to solve here and engineers being good engineers will when they can clarify the problem they're trying to solve then they will find a good solution to it but it's this real question of what am i actually aiming for and that's where i think it's essential to really engage with musicians or if you're a software engineer and you enjoy that that music creative process then learn as much as you can, engage as much as you can. The technology creates opportunities, but it also puts bounds on your imagination simply because we're conditioned towards what's feasible and not sort of saying what's really important and that will drive you to try and reach for the stars and sort of say, oh, I need more memory or I need another 100 CPUs or whatever it might be, that crazy endeavour that drives you forward in your own creativity.
0: You work uh, in the field of music information retrieval, MIR. Uh, We hear this word very often in the field of AI. Can you give us a bit more background about what what do you actually do as a music information retrieval person?
1: Yeah, um, perhaps I first describe what MIR is, what music information retrieval is, and then I'll sort of say, I'll give some examples of what... I'm involved with doing. Music information retrieval is something that really as a defined term, sort of grew up around about 1999-2000 with the formation of this particular conference, the International Society or Symposium of Music Information Retrieval. And it came as a sort of, in some sense, a as the interaction between computers and um, music had developed and grown there was a, some element of tension between the way in which people were using mu- uh, computers for composition and um, at the same time the degree to which there were increasingly more commercial sort of um, uh, possibilities around the idea of searching for music recommending music sorting music um, discovering or extracting information, you know, um, semantic information from music signals, from music audio. So it sort of became this, I think, what became a practical separation between those two ideas using a computer to create music versus using a computer to listen or to understand. And obviously those two have a have a, you know, a nexus, they have a meeting point between the two, but I think it, it was also a bit of a goal to bring more formal methods to this sort of approach. So, so this, it sort of grew from there and then that, it, it's very interesting the, with the growth of music information retrieval, has also dovetailed into this move into more what was originally termed connectionist, and now we're using the term deep learning or neural network models of representing artificial intelligence. Okay, And that sort of grew in the same sort of time period of the the early 90s through, so in that decade from the beginning of the 90s through to the end, really defined a change in the way we started to approach representing human knowledge and music became a very nice uh, uh, problem domain that we sort of showed a lot of results. So, so, and so ISMIR, the conference, just actually celebrated its 20th anniversary and I had the wonderful opportunity to go there in Delft. That so was nice to sort of have, you know, some perspective to see some of the, the very good researchers in the field. Just give a bit of a, a sense of how we've moved through those different stages of enabling technologies the problems have frankly stayed more or less the same, albeit they've probably got a little bit more detailed and we definitely know about them more. But it's interesting that the solution space has changed. The way we try and tackle these problems has improved dramatically.
0: I've written down a few areas where we can use AI in the field of music. So we have music composition. I think it's very important to mention here also like the, there is a difference between music composition Than the production of the music, and the lyrics. I think those are three different fields that are very important to differentiate because I think um, where we are right now with technology, it's very different, right? We can perform with AI, so AI has learned to react live Mm -hmm. to musicians.
1: You know, just to speak to some of those. You know, that that last one is what's perhaps become now what's known as an interactive performance system. So, in the sense that you're engaging with. Some form of technology, a computer, obviously, and the machine is responding to you. And the expectation is is that there's a musicianship there, that the responses that the machine gives should at least, in some sense, be musical. And obviously, we, you know, what's very nice from a compositional point of view is to, um, what would I say, adopt different strategies. How human-like that response should be. How different that that response should be so those sort of things are some some of the questions there.
0: we just have a robot that is on tour that is reacting live to an orchestra um shimon i think that's super interesting to see how how he reacts to it i would love to see it live at one point then we have music matching so which is also music recognition maybe we can match songs to each other
1: yes you know so for instance you know that can be the classic case of you know a rip Something like a Spotify or a Pandora sort of recommendation model. You've liked this music, then you know we will also provide you know something that may sound like this. Land one of Landers' products, as I say, is you might start with a loop and then say, find me other loops that sound like this. So you're able to sort of use the type of acoustic or listening psychology that we we have to and try and build a. Comp- Computer model of that to try and in effect uh help the the musician sort of get closer to what they're looking for what they can hear in their in their mind's ear um without you know literally having to listen to thousands of, of loops
0: what technique do you use there because i think for uh, music recommendation there are um, various ways to do it so we have collaborative filters i guess that's not what you do
1: yeah, that's no. That's, that's thank thank you for that. Yeah, there's two sort of major ways you can think about recommendation. One is, as you say, is is um, collaborative filtering. That is, you 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 have some model of the user, and you're using that model of the user to then make a suggestion as to the type of items. And in this case, you know, it could be something in your uh, Amazon. You know, sort of suggest you should buy this based on your similarity to other users they make a suggestion uh no what we're actually that's a perfectly legitimate way of doing collaborative filtering and in fact that's the sort of approach that companies like spotify and pandora use but they also incorporate and the sort of stuff that Lambda does too is what's called content-based recommendation that is based on one piece of content you make another you make a recommendation of another piece of content that is similar in its content and so, yeah, that's something which is obviously having to get a lot closer to how, you know, you're modelling the way in which we perceive similarity, modelling the way in which we perceive musical context. And so that requires, you know, a, a different model um, than perhaps an idea of similarity of users. So, so in, in and typically, as I say, a lot of these systems, ours included, uses a combination of these two. You want to understand what the user is, like or what they are interested in, but you also want to try and understand what is actually perceptually similar, and therefore, in combination, you hope to get closer to giving something that the users want.
0: Are you struggling with data privacy in that field, or is that not important there? Uh,
1: well, it you know, I mean, privacy, obviously, data privacy is obviously important. In our particular case, our um, sample library that we're recommending from we have licensed from our um, providers so we have you know legal agreements with them and that sort of thing and so the in this for this particular scenario we have the audio is being recommended based on the audio in terms of what we actually gather about the users obviously that's a you know, a question of what information is available to us. But realistically, the type of information that we're getting is around ideas of which region are people in, so what language um, uh, they may have, but also um, some things around, for instance, if they are uh, mastering and they're often mastering, say, a particular genre of music, this might just help us get closer to what what is done but you know obviously gdpr in order for us to operate in europe is something that we've obviously had to implement had to look at and so we have you know gone through an audit process to ensure that we're only keeping the data that is we are legally able to do you know
0: let's go maybe back to music creation which is the part that um, lander and you've been working in for the past four years i think Langer was uh, as you already said initially a mastering tool it masters music with AI within maybe a minute or so depending on the musical style I suppose but now you're also opened up to the step before the mastering to the actual music production are you using AI in that process as well I mean you you just said explained the recommendation but um I mean, for example, I know that in Ableton, for example, they have tools to add some more drums and this stuff uh, just to make it sound greater, which is automated. Do you also use other uh, AI tools in that field? We,
1: We, yeah, I mean, perhaps just to explain Lander a little bit more, our goal is to be a service for musicians all the way along the line or all the way along that musical journey. So from, obviously, mastering is quite late in the journey. Um, and so we've made a purposeful effort to try and provide tools towards for musicians much earlier in their journey, and that includes education. We do a lot of um, video blogs and so forth um, about engineering or scales, chords, modes, and so forth. So um, there are potential... We can use AI all the way along the line You know, just basically all the way. So from the education that we do, what sort of education is appropriate for a particular person where they're at, through to samples themselves. We found a lot of our musicians are sample-based musicians, so it made a lot of sense for us to try and address that market to provide something for them that, again, we could incorporate AI into that. And then you know there are other parts along the process. Some things we're still uh, have in the pipeline that I can't tell everybody about just yet. Would love to, but uh, watch this space. That uh, we are we're thinking about AI at every stage, and the reason why we're doing that it, it's a very practical reason. It's it's really saying that when you are engaging with music, it's a it's a creative human endeavor. And it's an unstructured form. and There's a lot of knowledge there. And for us to try and provide any value to musicians, to bring a, a degree of a musical assistant to the, the process, wherever you might be, from how do I reach out to my fans or, or something like this in our promo links, we're, we're always thinking about how can we make the, the, streamline the process and and require people to specify as few things as possible, try and understand what they're doing, and obviously AI is the approach to do that. So it's really, we really look at that as as a AI as a tool to achieve the bigger design goal, which is how do we streamline, you know, our users' journey in making music, you know, get rid of the roadblocks, the technical roadblocks that inhibit people from doing something, you know, how many things you have to go through? How many check boxes you have to go through? All of these difficult decisions. If we can sort of at least still, you know, give people the the the, um, the ability to sort of be goal focused and you know understand what they want to achieve, but not have to spend a lot of time going through a, a, a you know a difficult process to actually achieve what their goal is.
0: Yeah, I really like the approach that AI is a tool for the artist. It is not there to. To take the place of the artist um, there, but however we have we have some software developers who are, who are working extensively on in the field of music creation just by AI. And I mentioned beforehand that in this process it's um, good to differentiate between composing lyrics. And also the production. Can you give us some more background about how far the technology is there and what's to expect?
1: Yeah, I mean, in terms of, um, let me let me come at it a couple of different ways. Like, for instance, lyric generation or automated poetry is actually something that goes back to literally the early 60s. And there was some work done in South America. I, I recently came across some, some exhibits of early computer generated poetry so um and and so and that's obviously increased and now with the improvement of natural language processing this has actually become almost like an ai 101 task is learn a series of uh, irish folk tune uh, lyrics and have it automatically compose uh, these sort of things it's literally a nice little google tutorial You know, so so there's some work there's been ongoing work in that side of things. With regards, as I say, to generative music, there's many different approaches. Of course, historically, where there seems to be a lot of energy at the moment is in what's called uh, GANs generative adversarial networks, which are basically, without boring everybody too much to death, is this idea of you create two neural networks, uh, one which is trying to create a fake, or is trying to actually imitate something, and the other one which is trying to tell a fake from a real example. And the most successful example of this is in generating faces. And so um, you have these two networks that literally adversarially learn together, one trying to outperform the other, and they sort of create an equilibrium. And so that's now able to be used as a synthesizer to synthesize pictures. Of very high fidelity that are literally of people that do not exist um, and art can easily pass as being a believable image so that idea has there's been quite a lot of effort in in using Gans as a means to ge- synthesize music either to sy- uh, synthesize it symbolically generate some notes or effectively a score that you then use a computer synthesizer to actually ultimately render. And there's also been work to just directly synthesize the sound from this. And again, this idea of, of these two networks which fight it out to try and imitate a musical sound or to imitate, for instance, a melodic line of, say, something from Bach or something like this, and then the other systems are saying, no, that's not Bach or yes, that yes, um, that is true Bach can then make that distinction and these two literally compete. So so that seems to be where there's a lot of energy at the moment. There was a very nice tutorial at Izmir about that. And so that will become available for listeners to to dig into at some point. Perhaps we can put a link or something like that. So so that that's some work that's been done. There's been many other approaches to that. I won't bore people with all of the approaches, but certainly GANs seem to show a lot of potential. The biggest challenges tend to be um, the, what would I say, they're they capturing a surface-level behaviour, the, the real depth of sort of, for instance, hearing a piece of music that moves through a series of A, A, B, A forms or something like this. So an underlying structure, that's still very challenging. So the representing time... And multiple levels of time is something that I think we still have a lot of work to do. And that has, particularly when you do it with neural nets, that has a big memory issue, just literally, physically, how difficult it is to represent this much data. So that's, that's sort of the the current limitations. This was actually part of what I did my research in, which was representing musical rhythm in multiple different timescales using um, what's called a wavelet decomposition, a multi-resolution representation of time. So, so all of these ideas are really about sort of saying how can you best understand what people are listening to and, and how they are structuring the, ide- the musical idea in their mind and then when you have a model of that, you can then use that to generate you know music from that. But the real challenge is what sort of models are we building that are sufficiently capturing human behaviour... And this is an ongoing challenge, you know. I think this is... And, and of course, you know, we may... It might become more of a cognitive science question. It only shows us what human beings do better than than computers. And by definition, that advances our own knowledge of psychology in that way.
0: I guess you could easily write a radio hit with AI, just because it's a very easy structure. But then I guess... Again, if you want to write the next hit and everything sounds exactly the same, the next really big hit is going to be something that, again, sounds different. So that would be a challenge for the, the, the system again, right?
1: Yeah, I, know. I, I, would, I would actually challenge you slightly on something like Radiohead. It's not because I happen to also think they're a great band. But if, if you listen to that sort of music, then what you're really hearing is at one at sort of in some musical dimensions, it's fairly simple. But in other musical dimensions, it's very complex. So, for instance, the timbre, you know, the way in which they are incorporating different instruments and the the mixing, the um, music production is very complex. They spend a lot of time doing that. The actual chord structures, sure, are quite simple and that's sort of part of the creative cultural requirement of this music it's popular music it's music to be consumed it's music to be understood so there's a there's a degree of simplifying certain dimensions and expanding other dimensions I think that's just a classic creative strategy or ploy so even that even sort of saying oh okay we could we could do some AI to um, produce a, a, a radio head tune yes it might produce simple chord changes but I think it would at this moment, it's still quite a, a research problem to to produce a good result. really. that complexity in the in the mixing, that complexity in how the voice works. I mean, if you listen to Tom York's voice, is uh, you know, it's really, really, you know, there's 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 a lot of there's a lot of fine grain control there, which to try and have a computer reproduce that is still something which I we literally don't have that model to really capture that well.
0: We have this famous example of Flow Machine uh, doing the Beatles song, and very often maybe it's a bit mistaken because the song was only composed by AI, but then the production, as you just say, was done by a human being.
1: Yes, and and you know, and I mean, well, again, and and I I don't see that as an illegitimate sort of you know creative strategy. Okay, I use you know sort of AI to either try and imitate, or I use AI to try and create something new and then you can sort of see where the artist is interceding into that okay now i do the production myself or um uh you know and 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 i on the panel i was on in the reaper barn festival there were a couple of uh, folks doing some very nice um work where they were um from recordings they were then training neural net models on their voice and the portrait Jo, her name is uh this artist who uh she was uh, using this for sort of almost as an ideas generator to sort of take what she had done herself and literally have the machine listen to her own voice and then to use that as a mechanism to resynthesize and of course it fails on many different ways so it forced her to sort of engage with this material and and sort of find you know and draw on her own artistic endeavors mm-hmm. so as I say I, I always feel that you know that the creativity of the human beings, interacting with with an artificial intelligence is always going to sort of um you know what would i say keep the whole process moving forward you know you know and and that that's obviously at a very much a, from an individual artist's sort of perspective from using it for a creative tool you know there, there can be some arguments to say perhaps we you know we can use ai for um perhaps more mundane things i was speaking with a chap from uh, making uh, mixing deck consoles and and he was uh, saying that they're now incorporating a lot of AI and just literally understanding. Oh, there's a kick drum on this track. There's a bass guitar on this channel, and that sort of thing. And he says, okay, you know, for uh, for if you're doing a recording in a recording studio with musicians, that's probably not that useful. But if you're literally you have multiple musicians jumping up on stage in a live event. And having the machine being able to say, "Oh, I know there's a drum on this track. I will automatically select which EQ curves should exist for this, because I won't change the volume of each of these. But I already save you just sitting there and trying to find the EQ." So, so those sort of things. There's what would I say again? R- relatively mundane things, but they can they can often make a big difference to people making good music.
0: Yeah. just mentioned before there are two approaches maybe uh, with with the use of AI by creating music either you want to imitate or you want to create something completely new. Connecting to this I would be super interested in finding out how you can do this. Very often we hear that the AI is fed with certain songs and that's the point where a lot of people are starting to complain about copyright infringement I think it would be very good to on the top level (laughs) understand how can you feed a system and what does that actually mean, feeder system? So, does it just take some stems from this part, or take stems from there, or does it just read out the information and use the information? So, like, how does it actually work? Can you dive a bit deeper into that?
1: Yeah, sure. So, so just at a, at a top level, the idea, just to be clear, artificial intelligence is is the most broadest term and within that there's a, a, a sub-discipline of that called machine learning and this is this idea that you by training the machine on many examples you allow the machine to sort of derive the rules rather than sort of the classic model of using the rules with data to or using the rules to produce the data you in effect derive the rules from the data. And then that, in combination with the computer program, becomes a model. So, as you say, there are uh, many examples of the sort of work which is going on being presented at ISMIR, for example, such as analysing scores of, you know, possibly classical music pieces or, you know, uh, more popular tunes. It tends to be actually more classical music in many cases simply because the data exists. And often is an aesthetic um, uh, goal of the particular researchers too, to work in that genre. But it often has to do with the data which is available, which immediately brings up this question of which cultures are being represented and which cultures aren't being represented. So there's definitely some gaps there. You know, non-Western musical cultures are not being investigated anywhere near to the depth that Western and classical musical cultures are but uh, yes it could be something along the lines of training with these stems so for instance to learn how does a bass track interact with a drum track mm-hmm. and so that you basically you're training on a pair of these and the idea would be that you're learning in, uh, how these two relate when notes in time occur when a kick drum occurs when in the bass Occurs, you know, in time, for example, or it might be what are appropriate chords underlying a melody. So again, you might take, you know, a, a particular stem, a particular line which captures the melody and then by looking at those examples from a, a corpus of existing pieces of music, you can then have the machine learn what that would be. So uh, so that's that sort of uh, more from uh, learning you know the, the interactions between those. In, in many cases, something as, as mundane as a cover song detection. you may start with many, many different, recordings of the same tune which will obviously vary in tempo and key and rhythmic structure and uh, vocal you know it might be a male singer versus a female singer all of these are instrumentation in other words all of those things uh, you may literally be giving the machine many examples of this these are all examples of the same tune learn to find what is common and if you have enough of these examples these are some of the methods that are being used in you know, in some of these sort of tasks, yeah.
0: So would you say that the system rather works like a music theorist?
1: That's a great question. There's, you know, it, it's one of those things where you can say you form a theory and you make that theory so formal that you represent it in a computer. The other approach is that you take a sort of a more ethnomusicological sort of approach where you say, I capture a lot of examples of this, and, and from that, the theory is derived from the examples. You know, in other words, what, what is the commonality there? So uh, both of these are sort of, as we, as we find in non-technical based music, analysis and theory both approaches are, are legitimate they they're sort of in this in effect coming at the problem from two different directions yeah so it, it it again it often has to do with what's the form of the data that you have and this is always the challenge is what data do you have there's rights management there's availability there's and even those are tough but then there's also just do you have the data which is labeled so for instance do you have a if you want to have the recordings of the Beatles with the chords that they used, do you have you had somebody sit down and laboriously mark where all the chords are in the? You know, In every Beatles track, somebody actually did that or several people actually did that. For example, that's one data set that we can use. These sort of things or something even, again, a little bit more mundane. What's the genre of a track? What's the mood of a track? Is it happy? Is it sad? Is it um, aggressive? Is it is it rock? Is it jazz? Is it techno?
0: I think especially this must be super difficult because a lot of people understand different things when they when they try to describe music for example energetic might be something completely different to people so how how can you even put it into clusters if People have different understandings of it.
1: Yeah, there's there's some nice work. You're absolutely right. The, you know, there isn't obviously a single genre, and every, everyone would say that's far too reductionist. So there's some some nice work being done at the moment. Where, for instance, what you look at is you, in effect, sort of find similarity of language, so that you use you know, these terms that we're using and you sort of find a semantic map, you train a neural network to derive a semantic map of cl- how words are close or far apart and then at the same time you're also creating another semantic map, another neural network, what's termed an embedding, to um, uh, form, find tunes which are close together and then there's an interrelationship between these two embeddings, these two semantic maps to sort of say, well, okay, one person might use one word, energetic, another person might use a different word, but they tend to be close and that they tend to sort of form together so those sort of things the other thing too is you even when you go through this labeling process you have typically multiple people do this labeling they obviously don't agree with one another so it becomes a little bit more of a psychological experiment where you're sort of saying okay what's what sort of Gaussian curve what sort of histogram of labels are people using that forms a probability distribution what's Likely, what's unlikely, and then you have the computer again use that probability when it's making a judgment using something called Bayesian, you know, sort of inference. So you can sort of say, okay, these are the expected outcomes, and this is what we sort of produce.
0: Quite often, when I talk with people about AI and um, the data that they use, uh, they say it's, it's very important to have a diverse team so that the data is as neutral as it can be. I guess in that case, it makes total sense as well. Like how much, like in your team, how diverse is your team and would you like to improve that? Or
1: The first thing I would say is we always would like to improve our diversity, diversity within Lander and I think even just more generally within the music tech industry and probably even in the, the general tech industry is something which I think we're continuing to to recognize that there's we need to get more people of more diverse backgrounds in lander has a particular project to try and increase the diversity of people within our teams and we're doing a pretty good job we have i'm i'm not sure i can i i even have the numbers to give an example but we do have for instance a large number of women working for the company would we our particular research team right at the moment sadly we don't have any women working in our research team but that's a problem which is recognized within music information retrieval i'm very happy to say there's a very energetic group called women in machine in music information retrieval so WIMIR, and they typically have um, organized projects um, within ISMIR. And they do mentorships to to uh, enable, for instance, young women to become involved. They actually sponsor women or gendered um, minorities to um, attend ISMEA. Um, so just basically, sort of creating opportunities to grow more people. Obviously, Land is a commercial company, so you know we really can only hire people that are coming through the door. We. Doing more work with internships and so forth, so we've been we've been supportive of women. We have some people that are mentors, you know, and and or have put forward to to help being mentors. So it's 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 an ongoing project. You're absolutely right, and and obviously I've just spoken there about gender diversity. Obviously there's there's a cultural diversity. Obviously there's a regional or ethnic diversity, and all of those sort of questions. You know, it's something that we continue to engage with. We Pride ourselves that we are more diverse than some other workplaces, but there's more work we can do too, yeah. And as you say, those those things do play out in terms of the, how these AI systems work. Realistically, you know, we have more people mastering tracks which are in the EDM genre or the hip-hop genre than they are in the classical music genre. So obviously there's an element of bias just in the data that we receive from people. So we obviously need to be careful not to overly bias our system to, for instance, master, you know, say more, more popular genres better than, say, less commonly occurring genres. And that, that sometimes takes a real effort on the part of, yeah. in, in our case, us, to say we need to create a space for that.
0: I guess it's even helpful to be aware of this. Maybe taking a step back and just try to get a neutral look at it again, right?
1: Yeah, it is, and 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 that's something that I will actually give credit to the Izmir community to sort of be putting front and center. And it's been led by some very, very engaged and capable women to say we need the way in which we grow this. We're tired of being the, you know, the the five percent of people that are actually at this conference and they're not it's much it's bigger than that i gosh i should know this i think it was on the order of about roughly about 20% was um so it's it's still a ways to go but there's some some work and and as i say just continuing that that engagement is recognizing it i think is the big thing and creating that conversation within your workplace you know that's that's the important thing because it it ultimately translates into better products yeah. products which are more general mean that you're tackling the problem at a higher level which means that you actually bring a a greater depth of understanding to what that problem is if you're inclined to see everything within a particular style of music or a particular Um, form then you may end up with a system which really does struggle to sort of be moved in any new form in any new direction i should say
0: is there anything else that you're struggling right now with in your research of music like music information retrieval is there anything that you think i wish i could do this but we're just not far enough right now
1: yeah, I, I, well, that's a great question. There's, there's plenty of things we'd love to do better, of course. I, I think, you know, and this is a problem which really is, you know, I think we're still getting there. We're getting a lot further, but I, I think the, under, the more that we can understand musical time... Is, is really the key to unlocking a lot of other ideas. So in other words, the better that we can build models of musical time and of sort of understanding what one note means to the next note, that means to a note, you know, in three, in four phrases further... I think that's the real thing that really is still we still have a long way to go we're getting there things are getting better but you know the way in which I interact with another human being when I'm playing music is is still at a a level that I I find there's a big gap still when I interact with a machine so to me that's the big challenge and it's probably going to keep me working in this field for a very long time.
0: What do you think will be the future of um, music and AI? So do you think there will be a pop song solely created by AI or what do you think will be the future? Will will it be labeled just creating AI music or what do you think?
1: I mean... uh I can see or I can foresee some genres which perhaps are a bit more amenable to it I'm thinking dance music of course simply because you're missing the vocal in many cases so that there's a little bit more scope and because it's already a well-defined genre there's probably is scope for AI to be incorporated I don't I don't necessarily want to I'm I'm not meaning to imply that there's any limitations to it it's simply that it's probably a genre which is closer to being able to you know to to and also I think the durational sort of thing but to me that also you know because for instance if you go to a club you want to go to a club and you want to hear a new unfolding piece of music you don't want to hear exactly the same tune the whole time you you know you, Okay. Occasionally, you want to hear something that you you've heard before, but there's to me that scope just just almost that that creative context, you know, that cultural environment creates opportunity for AI to sort of be available. Uh, you know, historically, it's been experimental music. You know, I mean, so that's historically where all of this sort of AI music has been you know, created and operated within. So the interesting thing for me is seeing how AI is now sort of transferring more into popular cultures and the the greater uh, community is starting to understand this and I think be less... Um Intimidated, or perhaps just having their imagination sort of uh, challenged or, or sort of even uh, piqued by that to, to do it. So, but, you know, I, 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 yeah, I think, I can I foresee that becoming, you know, like a, an AI generated dance tune becoming a, a dance floor hit? It's possible. Sure, it's absolutely possible. I tend to feel, though, that's sort of still going to bound because there's, a, there's just going to be this element of how it engages with the, with the audience. Yeah, it's, it's going to be an interesting phenomenon, okay, but I think human beings are going to still want to say, okay, but where's that human being in that process? I think it's just otherwise, the, I think the cultural relevance or the cultural meaning is something that's going to be challenging.
0: Yeah, I don't think that AI is going to supplement artists at one point, or artistic work, let's put it that way. I mean, we have production music as well that is already partially taken over by AI, which I see as... Handcrafted work, um, but it's not necessarily artistic, in my opinion, um, and that's probably the reason why it can be taken over by AI and already is partially.
1: Yeah, you know, and, and uh, that has a lot to do with the economics of production music. So, and you know, this this gets into yes, you know, I think we're going to find those sort of um, those points that they interact. You know, as you say, you, your your question was more around you know. How does music that we see is culturally valuable to us and how much will AI be incorporated? I believe it will simply because the tools will help people make more music. But I think the the relationship of human being to human being in that process, I'm not concerned about that. That doesn't worry me too much.
0: Yeah. Great. Thank you so much. It was super interesting to talk to you and get a bit more background about the whole evolution. There is one question that we ask everyone at the end of our podcast. What is your favorite song at the moment?
1: Thank you. I, uh, I, I, I was listening to previous podcasts and I thought, oh, yeah. And no, it's a, a young uh, musician, Aaron Burnett, who's playing in um, New York City. And he's a, he was an artist in residence at a, at a performance space called uh, Roulette and um and he's a saxophone player young young man uh, saxophone player with a very very nice group and sort of really working on the line of modern jazz and free jazz and sort of really at that point between improvisation absolutely no no technology but i'm i'm actually blanking on his cd label but i'm sure we can put a link uh, to it
0: in the show notes
1: yes exactly but he's someone who just with a piece of brass makes incredible music
0: great thank you so much Lee. Thank you, Helen. Thanks also to Pete for producing our podcast and to Melodrive for producing our jingle.